On June 3rd of this year, I met Al Pacino, and now on August 23rd, I'm meeting Robert De Niro. So now I can die in peace, meeting my two favorite actors in a three-month span. First and foremost, can I call you Bob? Sure. Thank you, sir. Cinephile 200, from the top. Will Arnett, Dennis Leary, Vigo Mortensen, Robert De Niro, Terry Crews, Norm MacDonald, J.K. Simmons, Kevin Hart, Christopher Guest, Billy Bob Thornton, Miles Teller, Mahershala Ali, Keegan-Michael Key, Mark Wahlberg, Times Two, Ice Cube, Hank Azaria, Ken Jong, Jessica Alba, Ben Mankiewicz, Jeff Garland, Jerry Bruckheimer, Timothy Spall, Josh Demel, Andy Samberg, Steve Gutenberg, Jeremy Renner, Tony Hale, Robert Patrick, Richard Lewis, Rob Reiner, Margot Robbie, Willem Dafoe, Richard Jenkins, J.K. Simmons, Errol Morris, Tracy Letts, Nicholas Cage, Ethan Hawke, Paul Rudd, Helen Hunt, Michael Imperioli, Omar Epps, Paul Schrader, Jay Baruchel, Keith Oberman, Bo Burnham, Robert Townsend, Tom Berenger, Mario Van Peebles, Ike Barinholtz, Ty Burr, Robert Forster, Ben Foster, Barry Jenkins, Andy Serkis, Matthew McConaughey, all right, all right, all right, Tony Shaloub, Adam Driver, Chloe Seventy, Joe Talbot, Scott Feinberg, Justin Chang, Christy Lemire, Rebecca Keegan, Manola Dargis, Rhea Seahorn, Eric Roberts, Barry Sonnenfeld, George Gallo, Joey Badass, Lawrence Bender, Frank Caliendo, Justine Bateman, Leonard Malton, and many more. 200 episodes of Cinephile. I cannot thank you enough. Roll call, Cody. What is this, The Tonight Show? I mean, geez, that was impressive right there. <laughs> the best part is, how many of those guests have you done with me? Like, 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 that, like, uh, <laughs> that was a heavily tailed off at the roster. end there. I, I was thinking you would like tail off at the end, but today, I mean, we, we got a great author on today. We kill authors now. No, no, we don't kill them. We crush author interviews, and we got another one. The today. great James Andrew Miller. He is the author of an outstanding book, 975 pages. Tinderbox, HBO's Ruthless Pursuit of New Frontiers. I think it might be the best book he's read. He's written, and I've read the books on Saturday Night Live, Live from New York, ESPN, Those Guys Have All the Fun, and CAA. It was a tremendous read, particularly the stuff about my favorite shows, which I'm going to ask Jim about, The Sopranos, Larry Sanders Show, Oz. Uh, but there's stuff in there for everybody. Like, listen, I gave it. If you like HBO, this yeah. was such a cool interview. Like, if you if you have any kind of appreciation for what HBO has done with TV and HBO Sports, it is just, this is such a good interview. Awesome. I appreciate you saying that, Chris, because you're right. There's so much in there for everybody. And the book is amazing. Like, I'm not a Game of Thrones guy, but if you like Game of Thrones, there's like 50 pages in the book. So go check it out. The book is awesome. And as Chris mentioned, the interview with Jim is fabulous. Um, first and foremost, I just want to say thank you to all of you for the, the support. Uh, listen, Nick Durst does a phenomenal job. No relation to Robert Durst, by the way, his uh, dad did not kill people. But Nick does an awesome job of my social media, Cinephile Pod. He tweets it out, does it pro bono. He's the best. Brett Baker, JP Marietta, Susan Emery, Dave McPeak, Jim Stanzik, Sam Surface. They never miss an episode. They text me all the time. I was just back home from my boy Randall's wedding. RT, who is a former guest here in Cinephile, is a fabulous director. He's got a new show he's working on right now. It's going to be on CBC, which is in Canada, in February, I believe. It's going to be on BET Plus in America. It's going to be awesome. So shout out to my boy RT. Congrats on the nuptials to him and his lovely brother. Nikki. Love a wedding. Yeah, love a good love wedding. A wedding. By the way, though, I mean, so I've, it's a little bit awkward, but I have a cousin who's an anti-vaxxer. I'm like, dude, are you serious? And he's like, yeah. And I go, all right. Well, yeah. I'm going. We've all got a friend we or a relative. Right? And, and I said, I'm we, going we, to a we, wedding. We've all got a few. And I said, the, the, everyone has to be vaccinated. He goes, yeah. And I go, no, it's true. We have to show proof of vaccination. He goes, bro, those cards are so easy. I, go, I could get five of them right now by like noon. Oh, God. And I go, listen. He goes, you're going to go and you're going to a super spreader event. I go, no, I'm going to a wedding with 100 people from my college buddies who I've been friends with for 25 years. And listen, I think we're all being safe and responsible. Okay, good luck to you. 
So the wedding was awesome, but I mean, at one point, it's I so reckless. Yeah, but, I, but, but he did get in my head at one point. I'm like, there's a lot of hugging and kissing going on here. I'm like, this could get a little dicey, yeah. but whatever, we get through it. Uh, by the way, Randall is going to be on the podcast in February. So when the show comes out, he's been on the pod before. He'll come back again. Shout out to Alpha Hillwan, who I met him and my other friends. We went to the keg for steak dinner. Alpha never misses an episode. Love cinephile. Uh, the Canadian food was amazing. I had poutine, lots of chocolate, of course, the Smarties, coffee crisps, the rest of it, and also this crossing the border story for you, Cody. So to go into Canada, you have to take a PCR test. Right, 48 hours, you get your results. I got it here in Sakakis, New Jersey. Pretty sure insurance covers it. Um, as I'm crossing the Canadian border, I hand the piece of paper which says negative test and my proof of vaccination. Just got my booster last week. The guy says, I'm actually supposed to tell you to turn around now. I'm like, what? He goes, you didn't do the app. I'm like, what app? He goes, app can or arrive can or whatever it is. I'm like, listen, oh I work God. with many Canadians at the NHL network. Dave Reed, Mike Johnson, they tell me they drive exactly what I'm doing. Ontario to New Jersey, they hand their paperwork, we're going to go. I'm just telling you, you're supposed to do the app. And I'm like, I want to, like, I want to, almost like a curb moment. I'm like, how, how, how elitist is society now? You have to have an app. I'm like, no, I printed out the paper. Take the goddamn paper. I'm not trying to cheat you. I've got, I'm double batched with a booster. What more do you want from me? Here's the proof. It sounded like he was going to let you he go. He was, though. he was. It sounded like he but let then, you through. See, like, that, but, that, the worst is when they don't no, let you but, through. Like, at least, like, you see, I'm doing right, the right stuff here. Right, I shouldn't go. be doing this plan. But then he stuck it to me with this. He goes, here's a take home COVID test. I'm like, hang on a second. I just took the test Wednesday. Today is Friday. He goes, yeah, I want you to do this test. And you got to do this test within 24 hours. I'm like, okay, great. I'm a rule. I'm a, I follow the rules. I go home the next day. I tell my dad, okay, you got to swab my nose, dad. Okay, no problem. We put in the pure later thing. No problem. And then I text one of my buddies, Corey Urban, who works with DAZN. He's Canadian. And I said, make sure you get a, a, an antigen test from Shoppers Drug Mart before you go back. It was 40 bucks. I go there and the guy says to me, he goes, what are you doing? I go, I'm driving back to, to, uh, to America. He's like, oh, you're American. I go, no, no I'm Canadian. I, I I live in America. He's like, oh, you don't need to do the test. I go, well, you know what? I'm not going to take your <laughs> odds on it just in case I get stuck at the border. As I'm going into America, <laughs> proof of vaccination. No, no, there's uh, citizenship, Canadian. Here's your passport. Green card. There you go. He goes, have a nice day. I go, wait, don't you want to see my proof of vaccination? He goes, nah. And I go, don't you want to see the $40 antigen test? Nah. God bless uh, America. Welcome Chris to Cody. America. God bless America. Yeah, I was just going to say, welcome home. <laughs> <laughs> But it was great being home. Jesus. I had a cousin visiting, and so we, we really got into some sports. I was like, I got to show him to a good time. He lives in Tampa. Hadn't been to a Knicks game in 11 years. Expensive tickets. I texted Ben Lyons. And I go, hey, can you help me out? He's like, text this guy, you know? He goes, super flex who you are. Like, try to name drop. You know what the guy wrote back? Happy to help you purchase a few tickets. Here's the prices. $600 for the main room. I'm like, no, I'm not paying $600. No, we don't even see Nick's sons. Corner tickets are in the 200s. So I got a pair for 466 to watch the Knicks lose by 18 Oof. points and get drilled by the Phoenix Suns. My next Knicks game will wow. also be in a decade, okay? Unless the ticket price is coming These down, Knicks. I'm not going to MSG. They get back to just being like a little above average and they start blowing up all the tickets. <laughs> Julius Randle, let's go. Couldn't have been that expensive a couple of years uh, ago. The boxing was amazing. And that was actually the highlight of my weekend. I went uh, for DAZN. I was covering the fight. Uh, and it was awesome. Uh, my cousin was there. My wife went as well. So, dude, like, now, have you ever been to a boxing match, Cody? No, no, listen. I, it's one of the ones I need to. I want to go to a major tennis match. I've never been to a major tennis match either. Those are the two yeah, I want to do. Boxing, I'll tell you this. Nick Khan told me this years ago. He goes, you know, the only thing about boxing is the best moment, because sometimes the fight is a, is a dud. We know that. Although this fight was awesome. But Teofimo Lopez, for those who are aware, uh, lightweight fight. But the great moment is right before. Like, that ring walk is incredible. Like, that address, like, it's just a bloodthirsty yeah. crowd. Like, like gladiators are yeah. back in Roman times. Like, that one guy's about to get his ass kicked, and one guy's going to do the ass kicking. Like, that moment is awesome. <laughs> and then I went saw my beloved Flyers. That was free tickets through NHL Network. The best part of that is I took my son, Yusuf. And we don't know where the tickets are. It's free, right? It's through work, whatever. Club access. Yeah. And I'm, like, really excited. Like, what does club oh. access mean, you think, buddy? He's like, I think that means, like, we're in like, one of those clubs. I'm like, oh, we'll see. We go in there. Club access, free chicken, oh, free and unlimited chicken tenders, hot dogs, oh. sliders, <laughs> Pepsi, and ice cream. 
All right, that was the highlight. <laughs> Free food at a Flyers game, and there was a fight. So he was thrilled. He's like, ah, oh, we're going to see a fight. Flyers lost 5-2, but pretty good fight. So Roy Bellamy would be proud Hypothetically, of I mean, you were, you were with your kids, so you probably weren't getting no. after it. Was it free booze in no, that No, it was not too? free booze. Like, so. for the people that wanted? No, yeah, okay. you would have to pay okay. for the booze. Because <laughs> you're that okay. sloppy-eyed American. Well, no, there's, there's like this, the, the Panthers have a section where you can buy the ticket, and the ticket includes beer and wine and unlimited food. So I just thought maybe that was what the Flyers you. had. I love the on. fact, by the way, Bill Lindsay, who uh, Cody knows, a longtime Florida Panther, he, he told me that— You just talked to him about Roy Yes, yes. He always, whenever you I see him, I just name-drop Roy. So I'm like, oh, Roy best. Oh, Roy, yeah, season ticket holder. And then I remember I asked Roy, Roy's like, I'm not a season ticket holder. I have a, a, the media pass. I'm like, okay, you're not paying. Roy just, instead of buying season tickets, just got a credential Correct. and just goes there. And we're always like, he comes after the game, he comes into the show, and we're like, Roy, you got any sound for the game? Did you do it? He's just no. like, no, I just went yeah. to watch. Roy, <laughs> Roy, very cleverly using his juice just to go to free Florida Panthers hockey game. So I back him up on that. How was your Thanksgiving? How was everything going? Excellent, man. It was good to be back with the family. My dad does a fried turkey. I don't know how what, what style of turkey. Do you do you, what, what do you do? For we went to Long Island, which is hell turkey. because if you live in Jersey, it takes an hour and a half. It takes, I'm not kidding. Thirty three miles, hour fifty three minutes. Uh, and the Oof. turkey, let's be between us, a little bit dry. It wasn't great. Gravy wasn't that's good, what, dude. That's why you. That's why you got a fried turkey. I'm <laughs> telling you, the oven roasted turkey is long gone. Like that thing, it's yeah. dry. You get it. There might be a few good bites in it, but the fried turkey, dude, it's where it's at. I'm telling fried you, game turkey. changer. Have you ever had, you know, obviously as football fans, every year I'd laugh, Mad Men always talk about the turducken. But it's like a duck and a duck. Oh, yeah. Have you ever had that before? I heard that's incredible. No. <laughs> Boom! There's a turducken. I'm like, it's unbelievable. <laughs> and you saw the tweets I put of your dad as, uh, was it Greg the Hammer Valentine? <laughs> that was something. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh my God, that's Greg Cody. Like, there's Chris's dad as yeah. a wrestler. Wasn't expecting that. All right, now that we're all caught up, let's do a couple of reviews. I'll be honest, because I was so busy doing a bunch of stuff, I didn't watch a ton of movies. I promise. Next time on Cinephile, we'll do a lot more movie reviewing. But King Richard is excellent. It's available in theaters right now. It's on HBO Max. For those who are unaware, it is the story of Richard Williams, who is the father of Venus and Serena Williams, and it is played beautifully by Will Smith. It's a performance that right now is courting Oscar. As Chris pointed out in the previous episode of Cinephile, Will Smith hasn't exactly been bringing the heat the last few years or so, so this is a nice return to form for him. I thought he really got into the character, not only physically, you know, the hair, the voice, uh, the beard, the mannerisms, but also his stubbornness. Like If you're watching this movie, you go, all right, Richard Williams seems like a good dad, obviously very caring, uh, loyal, supportive of his daughters, but controlling and manipulative and kind of a pain in the ass, like when it came to tennis coaches and other people, but also fearless. His family grew up in Compton, which was a tough neighborhood that he faced resistance from gang members uh, and pulled his daughters out of juniors, which even as an avid tennis fan, I did not realize what a big deal that is. Imagine, you know, your kid's playing minor league baseball and you just pull them out like, no, we're not going to play. I don't want to burn you out. Just, just play baseball in the backyard and then eventually you'll be in the majors. Like, what? Like, no, you have to play games. Like, no, I'm not going to burn him out because you saw what happened to Jennifer Capriati and all the rest of it. Here, here's my quibble with it. I thought it would be like a really overarching story. Like, I could see Serena winning Wimbledon and Venus obviously dominating Wimbledon and, and their matches head to head. But this is very much an origin story. So maybe we'll get a King Richard II. Hey, Richard III, one of Al Pacino's favorite Shakespeare stories. But this is really Venus and Serena from ages, you know, 8 to 16. And that's kind of the, the version that they're telling. But I thought Smith was excellent. I can totally see why Will's getting Oscar glory. Um, Brad Oss had an odd complaint. He texted me. I hated the fact that Arantxa Sanchez Vicario, they just kept calling him Vicario. I'm like, well, I don't think most people are going to care about that. Um, Jennifer Capriani definitely <laughs> getting odd. after it. The one guy looks like Pete Sampras is amazing. I was like, I love how they get like an actor who looks just like Pete Sampras. Can't play tennis worth a shit, yeah. but he looks like Pete Sampras. Um, <laughs> but it was a joke. Johnny John McEnroe cameo as well. So I enjoyed it. If you're a tennis fan, you'll like it. I think if you like biopics and feel good stories, definitely Chris Cody is a father of a daughter, father daughter stories. Like, I could definitely see the appeal of this movie i saw this movie and i have to say it's it's my favorite movie that i've seen in in nice. a while i really liked it i thought 
Will Smith was really good in it. I thought his wife, yes. I, I don't know her name as the actress, but I thought that was a great role. And you got to see the dynamic there. While King Richard liked to think that he was the leader and runner of that family, he was still going through the wife. And that, that dynamic was interesting. I, I, I really, but you hit the nail on the head. The thing I took away from the movie most was the father-daughter thing and as a father of a daughter and you know i want my daughter to play sports so like the wrestling with burn, not burning them out being too pushy letting them do what they want but still kind of you know guiding them along i don't know i just I, I was relating and then the stuff trying to protect them i just found myself like looking ahead a few years with my daughter not that my daughter is going to be venus and serena <laughs> williams but it's just it's 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 conversations you have to have with yourself about like how hard do i push her should i make her play golf i want her to play golf like I don't know. I just found myself relating to it and just, but the movie was so good, man. I, afterwards, I wanted to watch it again. I wanted to get my wife to watch it. I, I was into it. One day you're, listen, you're a big baseball guy. Your daughter was playing softball one day, golf. Like you can already see, like you said. I just loved the beginning where he's going around to these different schools. Like I'm giving you the opportunity. He was doing them a favor. <laughs> he was going around to these different academies. Like I don't need you. I'm just telling you, there's an opportunity here for you. And I, I thought that was just, he was so confident that they were going to be amazing. Yeah, you got to have confidence. You're right. And that guy definitely had it in spades. There's been some talk off there. I saw one of uh, their half-sisters criticizing them. I'm like, listen, it's a fiction film, right? It's not a documentary. I'm sure Richard Williams has some warts. I'm sure there's a warts and all biopic. But this isn't the R-rated version of the Williams story. This is going to be the PG version, which is going to go to a wide audience, which I think has lots of truth to it. But I think that's a smart way to approach the film. Hey, we're trying to show it to Chris Cody's with fathers and daughters. It's not going to be for hardcore tennis people. It's not for like, you know, the life and times of King Richard. You mentioned his wife, by the way. She was excellent playing Orsine Williams. That was Anjanou Ellis, because you're right. He's going to get in all the props and all the focus, but she's that strong matriarch, that strong woman. Like she's she's like, hey, like there's that one scene where you know they had a meeting. She's like, oh, you didn't tell me about that. Like, hey, like I'm part of this too. Like, it's 50-50. Yeah. Uh, Tony Goldwyn's really good, good actor. He plays Paul Cohen. He plays a tennis teacher early on. And I love John Bernthal. Of course, he was in The Many Saints of Newark. He was the Punisher. He plays Rick Macy, who I didn't know who actually was the like, I always I always think of Boletary. Obviously, the Boletary Academy is so critical. But Rick is great. The mustache, the hair. Uh, Richard, you can't do this, okay? Come on, work with me here a little bit. He's definitely having fun chewing some scenery. So, three and a half Maple Leafs for King Richard. I'm sure it's going to be a big hit. Like I said, Will Smith, great for him. Reynaldo Marcus Green, by the way, the director, he was working in finance years ago. Like, talk about a guy with an interesting backstory. He, he wanted yeah. to go to film school, goes to film school, learns some things, goes to Sundance. Also, now he's making a film with Will Smith. Amazing. Uh, for the old, I just want to go quickly on this just because it was Thanksgiving and I kept seeing it on. It's one of my favorite comedies of all time. It's called Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. If you haven't seen it, do yourself a favor. Go watch it right now. Where's your other hand? It's between two pillows. Those aren't pillows! Please have mercy. My mom's favorite movie uh, ever. Listen, your mom has impeccable taste. That's, like when I was yeah. twelve, it was my favorite movie, and it stayed that way for a while. I'll now put it probably top two comedy. Like Naked Gun and Plain Street yeah. Automobiles are like my two favorite comedies I could rewatch over and over. And I try to kind of nail the essence of it. Like it's definitely got the odd couple thing. One skinny, uptight guy, one fat, loud, loud, all the rest of it. Steve Martin, John Candy. But it's got a lot of heart to it. There's this element of melancholy to it. What I find is there's like, you know, half a dozen like gut-busting, funny, funny moments. Shower curtain ring guy, please have mercy. I've been wearing the same underwear since Tuesday. I can vouch for that. <laughs> like, But it's also got a lot of heart. Like the, the ending is like extremely powerful. Like when you actually see where Del Griffith is and he says... 
I don't have a home. Marie's been dead for eight years. I'm like, uh, uh, heartstrings. Like, I got emotional watching when I was 12. I get emotional when I watched when I'm 42. I think John Candy should have gotten an Oscar nomination. Like, uh, the late, great comedian brings it. And obviously, Steve Martin is a genius. We all know that. The scene where he just goes off on Edie McClure. So I, I meant to mention in the previous episode of Cinephile, but all-time great Thanksgiving movie, a great road movie, a great buddy movie. You can't do much better than Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Now, those are the movies, of the way. I want to mention House of Gucci, which I wanted to watch. We'll do it next week. We've also got Power of the Dog, Jane Campion. There's lots more to get into. But because this is a celebration here, right, we want to bring back all the members here of Cinephile. So there's been a few over the years who have had segments here on the show, have been producers of the show. So Dan Stanzik, Joe Engelbrecht, Dan produced 78 episodes. Joe did 97 episodes. Chris Cody's now done 25 episodes. Claire Atkins has an episode, a segment, I should say, up in the air with Claire. My boy Rick Passmore, who will be on the new Cinephile at some point in defensive. Of course, Ben Lyons, the Lions Den, Scott Rogowski, Rags Time. So I want it to be a celebration. I don't know what they're going to say. Cody's put it all together. Here's the Cinephile past, giving their love to Cinephile. 200. We're in business here on Cinephile, so thanks so much for giving us a shot. If you love movies, you're going to love this podcast. The great and lovely and talented Jessica Alba is here with us in studio. Great to have here on Cinephile, the Adnan Burke movie podcast, Ice Cube. My new best friend. This is the second time we've seen each other in the last few days. Yeah, yeah, man. Oscar-nominated actor Mark Wahlberg. Two yeah. times now on Cinephile. Miles Teller is in the house. Time now to welcome back to Cinephile for the second time, actor Kevin Hart. The great Richard Lewis is joining us. All right, we're going to knock this out now. We're going to go all over the place. Three, two. You're listening to Cinephile. I know, but that's no. what I do. I am all over the place. <laughs> no, but I like it. I like Don't it. try to change who I am. <laughs> How dare you? You're listening. What if I told you to do your entire thing, uh, change, uh, bring your studio to North Korea? <laughs> okay, you're listening to Cinephile, the Adnan Burke movie podcast. The great Richard Lewis is joining us. I'm a huge fan. we got to start with this. Me and my cousins went and saw you a few years ago. You were in Toronto, my hometown. You were playing uh, Just for Laughs or Roy Thompson Hall. And your best bit was about how, now at an advanced age, your testicles have sagged so much that when your doctor gives you a rectal exam, he, he takes a running start to give you a colonoscopy. I just want to know, is that still the case? No, it's not the case because my testicles are missing. <laughs> they were rolling down a hill a week ago, as long as you're going to ask this disgusting question. Adnan, it's Claire, or to this podcast better known as Up in the Air with Claire. While you had me at Infinitely Polar Bear, I appreciate your openness to all film. I am more than happy to watch a period lesbian drama in your place anytime. Congrats on 200 episodes of Cinephile and infinite more episodes to come. Remember, less plot, the better. Congratulations, Adnan, on 200 episodes of Cinephile. Uh, from ESPN to Cadence 13 and now finally aboard the pirate ship at Meadowlark, here's to not just 200, but 2,000 more episodes. I never would have thought that when I bugged you at the picnic to watch my puppet horror movie Head, available for free on Tubi.tv, that we would become such good friends over the years. Thank you for allowing me to be a small part of this great journey. All the best, my friend. And keep the heat on Cody. He really needs to brush up his film game. On June 3rd of this year, I met Al Pacino, and now on August 23rd, I'm meeting Robert De Niro. So now I can die in peace, meeting my two favorite actors in a three-month span. First and foremost, can I call you Bob? Sure. Thank you, sir. 
A real pleasure to welcome in Bo Burnham. I'm thrilled to bring in Andy Samberg. The great Hank Azaria joins us. Real thrilled to have Ken Jong here with us in studio. The huge get for us here at Cinephiles, we have Matthew McConaughey. Joining us now in Cinephile is Margot Robbie. A real pleasure to be joined right now on Cinephile, the Adnan Virk movie podcast by Adam Driver and Chloe Sevigny. Real thrilled to have one of the best actors alive here with us in studio, Billy Bob Thornton. I'm me at every role I play. I don't even call characters by their other name usually. It's like... Who is William? Well, you know, William's the kind of guy, because you're automatically separating yourself from them. Right. You're, you're making them a mountain you have to climb. And I just don't believe that. Speaking of, of projects, again, against the grain, you were nominated Best Supporting Actor, A Simple Plan. I remember my buddy Mike and I, you know when you see a great movie, you walk out and you're just silent afterwards. Mm-hmm. Like, just like, it was like an updated version of Treasure of Sierra Madre. Right. And your character, Jacob, like when Jacob, it's just so heartbreaking. He just says, listen, man, like I've, I've never even kissed a girl before. Right. Like if being rich changes that, I'm all for it. Yeah. How do you know those characters? It seems like those those outcasts, those guys from the South, you know those people better, I think, than anybody. I was one more than people know. Yeah. I was I was kind of, uh, I was raised in the woods. And, uh, you know, when we moved into a town that was, a, you know, a bigger town, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I was, I was uh, kind of an outcast. And, uh, you know, teased as a hillbilly and all this kind of stuff, you know. So, uh so I went through all that, and I was just this bucktooth kid who never, you know, figured it amount to anything, and pretty insecure. Those characters are actually uh, probably closer to me than anything else. And uh, the character that, that scene you're talking about with Jacob in the car about the girl, that wasn't in the script. That was mine. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, that was an actual story. Hey, Adnan, this is Joe, your old producer. Hold for applause for applause and I want to congratulate you on 200 episodes of Cinephile wow it just seems like last week that you're doing your 199th episode of Cinephile in all seriousness though I was able to produce 97 of those episodes because of you I'm a more engaged listener uh, movie watcher movie goer you have made me a cinephile because of you i watched a lot of movies that i would not have watched otherwise such as the big night love that movie love a little stanley tucci and i really like what chris brings to the table though i don't know how you don't get scared working with a oh his last name's cody not coyote anyways adnan i just want to say congratulations on 200 episodes here's to 200 more episodes love the guests that you're getting best of luck i'll talk to you soon Fan of Cinephile, friend of Adnan Verk, starstruck in the presence of Chris Cody, Ben Lyons here saying congratulations on whatever milestone this is. I lost the email somewhere, but I think it was something about this being a lot of episodes or something. So congratulations. All right, here we go. We'll do it live. We'll do it live. Three, two. Welcome, everyone, to the 93rd Annual Academy Awards. Ben Lyons here, live somewhere deep inside the Dolby Theater, where La La Land has just won for best pick... Oh, wait. Sorry. Wrong wrong cue cards. I messed that up. All right. Here we go. What does it mean to be a cinephile? Huh. Never really thought about that. Does it mean you live your life one quarter mile at a time and toast Coronas to family? Does it mean you drive on Christmas Eve for three hours in each direction into a rundown theater in Times Square just to see the latest Martin Scorsese film about religious persecution that nobody will remember come New Year's? Or maybe being a cinephile means you'll risk a sinus infection and be forced to visit the Park City Urgent Care 
three times during your Sundance weekend to get a prescription for antibiotics and muscle relaxers that will get you high enough to interview Nick Cage on a press line about the 14th movie he's made in the last three years. Or maybe being a cinephile just means that you'll wait for over an hour to be the last person let into a theater to get a seat for a movie about a film that centers around men morphing into horses as commentary on race and toxic masculinity in the American workplace. You know what? I think being a cinephile is far simpler than that. I think it just means you have a big heart and a passion for film. So if that's the case, there is no bigger cinephile than my dear friend, my partner in crime at Jimmy Kimmel's Oscars after party, Adnan Verk. I appreciate, Adnan, your perspective on film, your enthusiasm for life, your mentorship and undying support, and our shared disdain for sorry to bother you. To this day, I have no idea how people pretend to enjoy that film. You're the greatest. I love you. Congratulations on this big episode in cinephile history. Moonlight won Best Picture! Moonlight won Best Picture! Love you, bro. And joining us now in the director edition of Cinephile, Barry Jenkins, the director of Moonlight. And the Academy Award yeah. for Best Picture. You're a fuck. Come on. La La Land. We lost, by the way, but, you know. I'm sorry. No. There's a mistake. There's a mistake. Wait, wait, Moonlight's one Best Picture. Moonlight won Best Picture. Whoa, we have a little... Oh, my goodness. This is incredible. Oh Moonlight won Best Picture. A drama I'm here at the Academy so Awards. This is like Steve Harvey. Remember that? This is not a joke. I'm afraid they read the wrong thing. This is not a joke. Moonlight has won Best Picture. We said earlier tonight, this. Ben, we were going to see a shocker. Is this is the shocker. Moonlight won Best Picture. Seriously, Barry, forever. This is my Al Michaels call. Do you believe, do you believe in miracles? Okay? I'm working for the Academy. This is Facebook Live, Oscars All Access. I'm going nuts with my buddy Barry Jenkins in the craziest moment of all time. Can you believe it? Oh, man. You know, it's funny. I I, I heard that a couple of days afterwards, and I was like, man, Adnan just lost it. <laughs> Adnan Verk, A.V., Circle Verk, Verk Nowitzki. A.V. Hunsecker, 200 episodes. Unbelievable. Mazel tov. You did it, pal. You made it to 200. You're almost at 300. Like that movie, 300. See, I know movies. Anyway, I miss you, pal. I love you, buddy. I miss doing the show. Rags Time is one of the all-time greatest podcast segments. We all know this. It's going to win awards at the podcast, the awards. It's going to happen. Lifetime achievement. I'm waiting for it. I've got my speech prepared. And when I do give that speech, you know what I'm going to say? I'll give it to you right now. I'm going to say Adnan, A.V., Circle Verk, Verk Davitsky, A.V. Hunsecker, you're the carpet to my crane. And you always will be. A day without cinephile is a day wasted. You better believe it. Congrats to you and the crew. Here's to 200 more. And then that's it. No one wants to hear 401 episodes, so end it at 400. 
They're thrilled to have Jeremy Renner with us. First up, Nicolas Cage. Another guy that I'm a huge fan of, Ethan Hawke. All right, here with Paul Rudd. Rob Reiner joins us now on Cinephile. Michael Imperioli is a terrific actor, and what a get for us here. Joining us now is Omar Epps, one of our favorites, J.K. Simmons. Joining us now is Academy Award winner Helen Hunt. His name is Willem Dafoe. Willem, thanks so much for coming on Cinephile today. Adnan, congrats on making it to your 200th episode of Cinephile. I remember joking about whether or not we'd ever make it to 100. I think we also said that we'd end the podcast if we ever landed Scorsese, but now that you're on your third distributor, I don't think there's anything stopping this rocket ship. But what are we doing to celebrate the 200th? Is there a party? Open bar? What kind of budget does Metal Arc have for this thing? Are they selling any cinephile merch yet? Does Cody have any cinephile trivia ready to go? I mean, that's how we used to give out the vintage cinephile t-shirts and hats back in the day. Can we at least get like a top 10 list of movies with a number in the title? I know you definitely have Eight Men Out and Million Dollar Baby in there. But here's my list. Number 10. Whoa, didn't think I'd get that kind of production in a voicemail. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Number 9. Ocean's Eleven, the Clooney and Brad Pitt version, obviously. Number 8. The 40-Year-Old Virgin. Is it true that if you don't use it, you lose it? Number 7. Apollo 13. Number 6. 300. Number 5. 7. What's in the box? What's in the box? Number four. Four weddings and a funeral. Had to get Hugh Grant and the lovely Andy McDowell in there. Number three. Gone in 60 seconds. One could say that Scorsese is your Eleanor. Eleanor, as you know, also happens to be my daughter's middle name, but not because of this Nicolas Cage classic. Number two. The Sixth Sense. Heard you guys are working with M. Night Shyamalan these days. Pretty good get. Number one. 12 Angry Men, just an all-timer. This might be the longest voicemail ever. It's supposed to be a voicemail, right? Or is it more like a toast? I don't know, whatever. Keep this in, Cody. In all seriousness, I have never been more proud of anything that I've been involved with professionally. We started a podcast seemingly on a whim, and within a year, you were at the Academy Awards. And a year later, we were both there, tuxedo-clad and casually mingling with the late, great Kobe Bryant. That all happened because of your passion for film. Your intimate knowledge, ridiculous recall, and unique ability to yammer at speeds rarely reached in this hemisphere is what propels this podcast. Cinephile forever. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. All right, thanks so much to those guys. They're the best. I will text them individually my thoughts on all their very, very funny comments. All right, now it's time for the great James Andrew Miller, his third appearance here on Cinephile. Welcome back to Cinephile, the great James Andrew Miller. He is the author of best-selling books on Saturday Night Live, ESPN, CAA, and his new book, Tinderbox, HBO's Ruthless Pursuit of New Frontiers. It's 975 pages. And Jim, I think this might be as good as anything you've ever written. I found it thoroughly engrossing, dense, informative, juicy. It's got everything you want if you're a fan of HBO. So first and foremost, congratulations on a monumental achievement. Three years of your life, 600 interviews. How are you feeling? Well, right now, given what you just said, I feel pretty good. I think we should stop right now. It's, this can only go. This can only go downhill from there. Um, no, thank you so much. It's it was uh, this is a big lift. I mean, SNL, of course, had a great history as a show. ESPN as a sports network, CA as an agency, but this thing was like an octopus. And uh, you know, um, I hope 975 pages doesn't scare people off. I was trying to write a book of record and. Uh, you know, like the other books, you can come and go inside it as you please. No, I think that's the key to it. And nobody else has ever done this exhaustive a history of HBO, which is why I love the fact you chose the subject matter. Let's dive into The Sopranos. There's so many great stories. So I want people, I want the interview to be enjoyable for all, but I also want to sell the book. So I want people to know there's a great story about Michael Imperioli driving on the first day. There's a great quote from Chris Albrecht and Lorraine Bracco about why the stories may not get picked up. Family Man was the original title. They almost got kicked out of a funeral home because they heard Junior's immortal line, she gave me my first blowjob. But how about the demons of James Gandolfini? He once had, and this is new information. I've read so much in The Sopranos. Jim knows this. If you're a Sopranos Uber fan like me, I went to the Sopranos Con convention here in New Jersey, but I'd never heard this story before. Intervention with David Chase, Chris Albrecht, who is the executive in charge of HBO programming, his sisters as well. Jim Gandolfini was once inebriated while doing Snow Angels in the absence of snow. Jim, we know that there are tortured histories of superstars, but this is remarkable to me that this show lasted, that this happened, that this guy had all this baggage and yet was able to perform. To me, he is the face of HBO in so many ways. I think that's right. And I, I, one of the things that I try to do, I mean, look, it's very hard to, to always come up with new elements when you know I do these books, but I really do try. And I do that with my podcasts as well, like with Almost Famous and other things. And uh, I was really pleased that, got some people to talk about things that hadn't been reported before and and most importantly about why they happened you know um fame can be a real mind fuck for people and i think that you know particularly given the fact that gandolfini had some issues in his life before he even became famous um becoming famous doesn't mean that they go away in fact sometimes it can make it even more difficult and i think that one of the things that i tried to do is trace the pedigree of his difficulties and his balancing act that he did you know he, he he had a very tough time with this role because in order to get inside the head of Tony Soprano Jimmy Gandolfini had to had to tap into things that were existed within his dark side and so it was a uh, it was in some ways a very very difficult lift for him 
Huge heart, very generous towards members of the crew. Sometimes he'd have to stop production because he was out carousing. He'd make up for it as best as he could. Contract stalemate, but gave part of that money, $33,000 to 16 crew members to say, hey, thank you, fellow actors, I should say. Um, and, of course, the stuff with the military. Again, I want people to read this book. There's a particularly illuminating story about how passionate Jim was about soldiers and those in the military. But it is incredible to me. Are you amazed at all, Jim, by the, the staying power of The Sopranos? Like, you and I are avid fans of the show, but are you amazed that in today's age, now, especially during quarantine, people are re-watching the show. I've binged it many times. I know you have. You amazed at all by the, the staying power of the show? Because I think one of the best things about the show is this. At its apex, it was both the most dramatic show on television and the funniest show on television. Right. Well, look, I'm, I was delighted that some of my friends who had never got a chance to really watch every episode took the pandemic and, you know, went from A to Z with it. Because the other thing is it holds up beautifully. And I do think that, you know, some of these iconic Soprano episodes, not to mention the whole series. I, I think they, they stand the test of time. I mean, look, the other night, I, in the middle of the night, I wound up watching, you know, The Third Man is a big fan. You know, you and I talk about that movie. Carol Reed. I, I some of those great movies and some of the great TV shows, they, they're just timeless. And Sopranos arguably, you know, is on the Mount Rushmore of, of greatest television shows. And it really holds up. And I think the other thing that you realize when you go back and you watch it time and time again is the fierce, the, the, the incredible level of writing and acting on it. I mean, it's unbelievable. You know, if you go back to like Whitecaps and you look at Edie Falco and James Gandolfini in that, in that show. And I mean, that's, that's some of the best acting we've ever seen on television. And so I think, um, and to your point about humor, I mean, that was, I, I got into Pine Barrens, of course, because it's one of the most iconic episodes. And um, Steve Buscemi talked to me and of, of course, Terry Winter. But, you know, the idea that they were able to marry that level of humor with the violence and the danger and the whole tone of the show, um, that's a really, I mean, in terms of diving, that's like the top highest degree of difficulty there could be. And I love that Terry Winters said he always enjoyed the time on set. Like he goes, this was dark material, but it was a good crew. It was a good set. Everyone got along by and large, which is important sometimes. You don't have to have acrimony within success. You can have a great collaboration, which brings us to the Larry Sanders show, which is my favorite comedy of all time. You know, I'm watching this. HBO was not available in Canada where I grew up, Jim. So I'd watch it on CBC late night, Saturday night, 12.35 a.m. Eastern, while other 16 and 17-year-olds are out carousing. I'm watching the show. Was it censored? Yeah, it was not censored, which is part of the allure as well. I'm 17 years old. Oh, my God. They say the F word on this show. I can't tell my dad. But I said, yeah. I want to work in television one day. I, I think these guys are hysterical. And then once I worked in TV, I said, I never realized just how accurate the show was from, you know, the, 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 a star. As Conan O'Brien once said, you know, the combination of, man, this is the best. I got to get out of this. Like, that's what it's like being on television. That's what it's like for Larry Sanders. You know, already obviously ripped torn the buoyant, upbeat producers, you know, take no prisoners, Jeffrey Tambor's insecurity. I mean, there's so much to it that I never realized the verisimilitude of it and just how accurate it is. And you've written about television, you know about all these things. But again, with your book goes deeper. Michael Fuchs, who's an incredibly influential executive, at one point dating his leading man's lady in Linda Doucette, which is hell of a move by Michael Fuchs. This is Shailing's lady, right? Fuchs is fearless, man. <laughs> You do not want to bet against him while he's CEO of HBO. <laughs> uh, Shaley at one point is having an affair with Sharon Stone, who was memorable on the show, by the way, which I did not know about the other stuff. But I never knew this. So Rip Torn, if you'd asked me prior to reading your book, I would have said, oh, Rip Torn is probably one of those guys on set. 
Maybe a little like Gene Hackman, Burt Reynolds, a little grouchy, but like good guy, funny guy, obviously incredible in the show, won an Emmy Award. And then I read your book and I see the Peter Tone story about Rip Torn. That was incredible stuff. Rip Torn was not nice to people behind the scenes. Yeah, I'm not going to try and characterize Peter's story because he tells it so beautifully. Yes. And by the way, Peter Tolan, you know, just an amazing, beautiful, smart, gifted writer who, you know, Larry, who Gary wound up trusting. But he tells um, a couple of Rip Torn stories, and uh, so does Linda, that I think bring Rip to to new light in people's minds. No question. And Shailing's, you know, he was obviously been... Deeply affectionate portrait by Judd Apatow, The Zen Diaries of Gary Shaling. You get some great stuff there by Judd. But I love that you show all sides to it. Like, Gary's an incredibly talented, influential comedian, and he was being worked to the bone. Rita Moreno tells a great story of going on Larry Sanders' show. And, oh, my God, this show is like, I would never want to work on this show. Shaling's being pulled in 10 different directions. And Apatow actually broke down his day. He goes, think about it. They've got to do blocking one day. He's writing one day. He's going through other scripts. He's meeting with executives. He's acting in the show. Like, it was incredible that he was able to perform this magic trick. And it's one of those shows, as you point out the book it did not get huge ratings but it was enormous critical success it was critical to hbo and you talk to anybody in comedy they all cite the larry sanders show sasha baron cohen ricky gervais they all love that show what it did was it sent uh, a real clear signal to the hollywood community that hbo was not only open for business i mean obviously they had had some series before then but they were open for business in a big way and they were willing to give creators and writers the kind of freedom that they could never experience at the networks. So, you know, for instance, Gary once turned in a show that was 20 minutes long because he, he just didn't think the rest of it was good. He took a year off once. I mean, you could, there's, there's, there's no way that you could do that at a broadcast network. Right. But at the same time, HBO was trying to send a signal. And, and by the way, people in Hollywood loved the show so much, even though it didn't get big ratings, that they wanted to come and work for HBO. And remember, this is before Sex and the City. This is before Sopranos. This is before Curb, before Six Feet Under. And so what you have is this incredible infectious enthusiasm brewing, you know, kind of like off stage for being in business with HBO. Yeah, you could see the allure of it. It's like, hey, they let you get away with stuff that you can do that you couldn't do elsewhere. And Tom Fontana who I always have the enduring debate when people say, oh, you don't seem to love The Wire enough. I said, no, I like The Wire, but I love Homicide Life on the Street, which is the other great David Simon cop show set in Baltimore. And Tom Fontana gets this chance to do a show called Oz, which again, in Canada growing up, did not have HBO, but it was on Showcase, unedited. I'd watch it a few months after it aired on HBO. I made my old college roommate, John Allen, go, this is the best show on television. Are you kidding? This is a great quote from Tom Fontana from your book. Early on, I got a, for those who aren't aware, it's a prison drama. Early on, I got a call from somebody at HBO syndication sales, and this person said to me, you have to shoot alternative takes of the scenes to get rid of any bad language. I told him that's virtually impossible. He says, no, no, I really need you to do it. So I said to everybody, we're going to shoot one scene, and then we're going to reshoot it. The dialogue was something like, fuck you, you cunt bitch. I've had enough of your motherfucking shit. Then I said, okay, let's shoot the alternative. The actress said, hey, stop it. I said to the guy, and he said, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, and it's not, and by the way, you know, the thing is, Adnan, it's not only language. It's, you know, it's, Chris Albrecht said to Tom Fontana when they were starting the show, tell me something you could never do on network television. He goes, well, I always wanted to kill the lead in the first episode. And Albrecht looks at him and goes, do it. <laughs> it's like, it doesn't matter. I mean, forget about language. It, it doesn't matter. There are no rules. There are no guardrails. And so when you get that kind of mindset in the hands of brilliant people like 
Tom Fontana and David Chase and others, you start to realize that, you know, you're expanding what the medium can offer people. And, and as a result, viewers can't find it anywhere else. I just saw Rita Moreno. They had a profile on her on 60 Minutes by Bill Whitaker. It was excellent. Of course, the new West Side Story is coming out, Spielberg's version. And she's talking about when she was offered the role. And she's assuming, okay, I'm kind of a big deal. Like, I'm an EGOT, Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony Award winner. Tom Fontana wants me in this prison drama. I'm probably going to play the warden. He says, no, you're going to play a nun. And she goes, ah. Uh, he goes, no, no, it's a nun who actually falls in love with Christopher Maloney, one of the inmates. She goes, oh, that's going to be something different. And how gutsy was her work on that show? This is all generally young males who end up becoming really, really good actors. Chris Maloney among them, J.K. Simmons, incredible as. Schillinger, and she said, Oz damn near killed my career. The lighting was so harsh, but that show was so groundbreaking, Jim, and I think about all these shows, we talk about men behaving badly with The Sopranos and Mad Men and Breaking Bad, but I feel like Oz doesn't get nearly enough credit for being influential in that vein. Yeah, I really try to give it its due, um, both in terms of just what it brought to television, but also, once again, you have, just like with Larry Sanders, you have Oz breaking all these rules all this freedom and unbelievable performances. And that also sent a message to the community. I mean, remember HBO is a big driver of film people coming to television. There used to be a really kind of like a pseudo hierarchy. If you were a movie star, you looked down on television. If you were a TV actor, you wanted to get into movies. You know, it's part of like, you know, moving up the food chain. And what HBO starts to do is starts to blur the lines and particularly with their movies and also in their series work. And I think it was a phenomenal, phenomenal decision on their part um, to, to make sure that they were as attractive as they could be to people who maybe hadn't thought about television before. We're talking with James Andrew Miller. The book is called Tinderbox, HBO's Ruthless Pursuit of New Frontiers. I encourage everyone to go buy a copy. Jim and I are also colleagues with Cadence 13. He has a podcast called Origins. I have my NFL podcast, The GM Shuffle. And one of the origins was a focus on Curb Your Enthusiasm, which we all love and appreciate. But Jim knows it better than anybody. I love this writing on page one, page 393. Kirby enthusiasm is irascible yet priceless, obstreperously flouting. LD will announce to a crowd at a religious function he is suffering from a tickle in his anus, and he's absolutely fearless. Uh, the J.B. Smoove audition story is worth the price of the book alone. If you're a Curb fan, read the book, read that story. But my question is this, HBO is a spot for creators and they give you such freedom. But I feel like, Jim, Larry's a separate level of autonomy. Like in this latest season, they're talking about the show and he goes, eh, no notes. Like, eh, no notes. But like literally, he's lived his life getting no notes. I don't know how he's done it. Well, in part because he's so good at what he does. And, you know, can you imagine being like a junior exec at HBO and, you know, going to Larry David and say, listen, I have a couple of notes on that scene that you with you and Jeff. I don't really think it works. I mean, you, you might as well just take a, you know, 357 and shove it in your mouth. I, I think that, you know, and by the way, that's one of the reasons why. I mean, can you name another show that comes and goes over a period of 20 years? Yeah. I mean, Gary, I mean, uh, Larry was gone for like seven years in between seasons at one point. So it's all about freedom. And I think that that's how you get into bed and business with somebody like Larry David. I mean, I think that when the show first started, it was very interesting because Albrecht, you know, had a decision to make when they did that mockumentary, which basically served as the show's pilot. And he realized that the stuff in Larry's life was more interesting than the stuff of him being a stand-up on stage, which was originally you know, part of the conceit. And, you know, just that ability to work with Larry and to pivot like that and then let him go off and, and run with it. Um, I think it's, you know, it's, it's obviously stands the, t 
again, stands the test of time. You've got great stuff there also from Susie Essman. If you're a Curb fan, you'll want to listen to her stories, her quotes, while they all love doing Curb enthusiasm so much. Um, HBO Sports, this is one of your best lines of the book. If it wasn't for Roger Goodell's testicles, HBO might never have landed Bill Simmons. I don't want to get into the Simmons stuff, but that's just such a great line. Here's another great line by Bob Costas. When it was a game lost to a doc from Y World of Sports, Costas quipped, that's like Mozart losing to Def Leppard. There was HBO Bob and NBC Bob. You described him as eloquent, unflustered, slyly witty, an oracle who did his homework, which is fabulous. So one of the great tete-a-tetes, all right, this is, this is truly legendary. This is Frost Nixon. Costas versus Vince McMahon. Who came out ahead, do you think? Well, first, let's look at the tail of the tape. I mean, they're both the same size. Uh, you know, they both have the same kind of personalities. No, I mean, look, I, I think that those moments, um, I, you know, that, that moment with Bob and, and Vince, it shows two things. One is it shows, I mean, Bob wasn't backing down, even though it's kind of like a, a shack next to the uh, Chrysler building. I mean, he's well over four feet and Vince is like, you know, seven feet or whatever. I mean, it's crazy, the physicality, the disparity in their in their physical dimensions. But I also feel like it gave Bob the chance to show, I guess that's what he was trying to prove, which is that he wants to be a tough journalist. He's not going to back down. And I think that, you know, in some ways, it gave Vince the opportunity to show, I'm really not going to just pick you up over my head like a piece of Kleenex and throw you across the room, which I could do. I mean, even though Vince obviously got uh, a little perturbed, I think you gotta you gotta give both men a, a lot of credit for the fact that they, you know, despite the circumstances, kind of held it together. Yeah, no question. And I, I love the quotes from both, but they're both such honest guys and very articulate and blunt in their own ways. There's good stuff there also on Joe Buck Live. The famous story what happened to Artie Lang. Jim, you can, listen, I love Joe Buck, but you can't tell a comedian, hey, if you want to take a shot, go ahead. You give a comedian that kind of room, they're going to run full throttle. Like, I, I'm not surprised at all that Artie Lang destroyed him. Yeah, but the great thing was, though, that Joe was okay with it. Right. Like that's, I think Joe Buck in, in, if you read this section in the book, I think Joe Buck is amazing. Like he's got, he's got an extra layer of Teflon. It's not about him. He's not super sensitive. And in fact, you know, he goes to the bosses at HBO sports and then it ultimately goes to Richard Pleppel to see you because he wants to have him back. Yeah. It's like, come on, let's, let's, let's do it. Let's, let's keep going, man. I I mean, I think, you know, again, I, I think Joe Buck is extraordinary. I mean, he's, he's incredibly talented and I think people don't give him uh, a fair shake sometimes because this guy really, I mean, he, he keeps it together. He does. He's not a narcissist. He doesn't make it about him. And when people dump on him, he's like totally cool about it. Yeah. I mean, it's really hard to do. I agree. He's top of the food chain as a broadcaster, you know, great voice, smooth, knowledgeable, doesn't make it about himself, like you said. And then when he gets criticized, he's the first guy to make fun of himself. He's very self-effacing. So yeah, definitely read those sections. The best comp I can pay the book is that while reading it, Jim will make you realize how much stuff you've missed. So I've got to go watch Paradise Lost. I watch Andrew Jarecki's The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, every broadcaster's nightmare being caught the hot mic. And going clear, I don't think it's overstating Jim to say it might be the most influential documentary of my life lifetime. I watched that movie and I said, I'll never watch a Tom Cruise movie again. I found him utterly contemptible. Going Clear was the highest rated documentary ever for HBO. It exposes the litany of abuse that's been done at the hands of Scientology, for which Cruise is clearly in cahoots with David Miscavige and others. Alex Gibney did an extraordinary job with that. And I think one of the big aspects of HBO is they champion underdogs and they are fearless. They are going to do stories that nobody else will do. Something like Going Clear, you know the opposition you're going to face from Scientologists and people with 
deep pockets in Hollywood, and HBO says, fuck it, we're doing it anyways. Yeah, I mean, look, I couldn't couldn't have said it better than you just did. I think that one of the things that, you know, I mean, Lawrence Wright is such a beautiful writer and such an important writer. And he has a take on this, and Alex Gibney, they they join forces, and I don't think I don't think there's a moment that HBO is naive about what is coming down the line. And yet they remain equal to the challenge. They don't back off at any point. And, you know, there were some difficult points there. Um, I, I think that that commitment um, is extraordinary. And I think that that's what happens. Look, Paradise Lost, I mean, at the beginning, there really wasn't a story. But Sheila Nevins has both the gumption and the autonomy to say to those guys, listen, stay down there. My gut tells me something's there. You know, when John Alpert is in Baghdad and he can't get out of the hospital to go and do the stories he wants, she says to him, there's stories right there and there you go and there's Baghdad ER. So I think that it's, you know, constantly you're seeing these moments where executives have to pivot and they give creators the freedom to reimagine things that you know, in a different way and give them more resources to stay longer, to shoot more, to figure out more. Uh, you know, I mean, I think that what Andrew Jarecki did with the Jinx is, I mean, almost unparalleled. Uh, you know, the fact that we just finished the trial um, where he was found guilty, that that trial isn't even going on without Andrew Jarecki and the Jinx. So, I mean, you're talking about the most impactful kind of documentaries. Couple more, and we'll get you out of here. Deadwood, love that show. It was not highly rated. They do three seasons. Ian McShane was unforgettable as Al Swearingen, and Chris Albrecht offers a fourth season to David Melcher creator. Says, "Listen, it's going to be a little bit curtailed. It's an expensive show. It doesn't rate well. We'll let you do a fourth season." And Melch says, "I'm not the type who gets sentimental with this stuff. Don't worry about it." And they don't do it. Years later, they make a Deadwood movie, which was fine. But Jim, I can't believe David Melcher didn't just accept the offer. Do six episodes. Do eight episodes. It's fine. Well, I think the thing about David Melcher is that. He has so many interests and so many ideas at that time in his life that it's like, you know, if he felt like doing another season was going to be pouring water into a bucket that didn't have a bottom, why not start something else, particularly if he was passionate about something else? And of course, we know he had several ideas at the time. But I think that that, you know, what you just allude to is part of the process. Look, Albrecht was ready to cancel The Wire. And he brings, you know, David, David Simon comes in and says, look, I really want to make the case. And they have an hour and 15 minute meeting where Simon creates, lays out the architecture and the stories for another two seasons. And how many times have you heard a network executive change their mind in a meeting? And Albert goes, you know what? We can't cancel this. Yeah. We got to do a couple more seasons. And it's, so those are the moments where you realize that, you know, HBO is using a different playbook. Some notable misses, The Crown, Breaking Bad and Mad Men. I'll defend them on Mad Men, because as you illustrate in the book, Matt Wiener, who's a part of the Sopranos writing staff, has this show called Mad Men. If they greenlit it, then you're basically taking them out of David Chase's staff, and he was very inextricably linked to what Chase was doing with the Sopranos in later years. So why would you, to use a sports analogy, piss off your star athlete if we're taking his you know, right-wing guy and putting him over there? So I, listen, does it hurt they didn't have Mad Men? But I, I thought you illustrated why it was such a challenge for HBO to do it, because Wiener was working on Chase's show, and the Sopranos was their baby. Yeah, I mean, I try. There's a bunch of them, right? House of Cards. I mean, yeah. they were interested. I mean, that was the big wake-up call, right? HBO's House of Cards. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Yeah, let's do a pilot on that. And all of a sudden, Netflix says, "Yo, to, to David Fincher, yeah, we'll commit to two seasons." 
Look, look, it's like, are you kidding me? It's like, what? I mean, that fundamentally changes every single rule in the game. So all of a sudden, it's no longer about, you know, the patina and the halo of HBO's brand. I mean, we're talking about a whole different business plan. And so that starts to happen. Look, Breaking Bad, I'm firmly convinced that Carolyn Strauss, who I consider to be, you know, a real hero in this book, she is wildly imaginative, crazy smart, and indispensable to HBO's success during those years. You know, she loved Breaking Bad, but there's also stuff going on out in the other parts of the company. You know, everything is so dour, everything is so negative, everything is so dark, and trying to launch a show like Breaking Bad in that climate was difficult. Um, the Crown, I won't even try and attempt what uh, I put, <laughs> it, I tried to really kind of like trace the pedigree of that rat fuck, but um, that was, uh, <laughs> that was, you know, and by the way, you just mentioned, you know, Lewis and Clark, yeah. you take the money, Lewis and Clark and vinyl and yeah. just those two alone probably pay for the crown. I mean, you know, it, it's just, you know, look, nobody knows everything. You don't know it at the beginning, but boy, oh boy, the crown was, the crown was HBO's to lose and boy, did they lose it. One of the great gifts that Jim has done is not only shown HBO's history, but like I said, he's given me a lot of things to go stream and go watch on HBO Max. And of course, a shout out to friends like Dave Harmon, who I'm working with boxing and zone this weekend. Nick Khan. Dave Harmon, Dave Harmon, man. And see, Dave Harmon, that's a name that people don't necessarily know, but he is indispensable to HBO Sports. He's just a guy who goes and does his job and does his job really, really well. Doesn't have a big ego, doesn't need a lot of stroking, but you know, it's when people say, look at the production quality of HBO Sports. I mean, the Dave Harmons of the world are, I mean, that's, he's just a terrific guy. You're lucky to be working with him. Yeah, I look forward to seeing him in Vegas. We get the Haney fight this Saturday. And of course, Nick Khan, great quote on Ross Greenberg. You can check that out in the book. Very, very blunt. Tinderbox, HBO's ruthless pursuit of new frontiers. Go check out the book. It's a monumental achievement. It's surely going to be one of the best books of the year. And now you want me to go watch The Third Man now. The Zither score. How about that? I mean, the cuckoo clock speech by Orson Welles, the last shot of Joseph Cotton smoking the cigarette. She walks by him. What a movie. It's so good. Last thing, Eagles, uh, Jalen Hurts, three interceptions. I mean, Jalen Rieger has hands of soap. I mean, what, what are we doing here? Okay, we had a slight window. The Eagles can make a push here towards the playoffs and we lose a game like that against the Giants. Are you kidding me? Well, you know, but I think that you know, last Sun Sunday was a great example of every time. I mean, look, we obviously had that great victory in Minnesota over Brady, but Every time, as an Eagles fan, you have to understand that every time you're, that you're starting to feel a little good, uh, just a little positive, like, a, like, oh, my God, how is it possible? We went through all the, okay, maybe there's a chance. And, oh, my gosh, Dallas lost on Thanksgiving. And wait a second, is there a ray of sunshine? Just know that the world is going to come and do like a big dump right on your head. <laughs> it's going to be, they are not going to be out. They're going to, they're going to play their worst game against the Giants. Who they should have I mean, and that is your reminder. Oh yeah, no, I forgot. That's right. I'm an Eagles fan. Yeah. <laughs> it's not supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be incredibly awful. It's a, you're, you're, you're supposed to knock your head against the brick wall right. 20 times during the fight, during the, during the game. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, look, the truth is for the rest of the season, we have one of the easiest schedules remaining. Right. Washington twice. I mean, my gosh. But you know what? We we could run the table or we could lose them all. <laughs>
I mean, welcome to Philadelphia Eagles football because there is no consistency. And, you know, I mean, it, it's just amazing. You think you pull out a great win and then all of a sudden the next week, you know, it's like you suck. So that's that's what it is. Yeah, the fault lies not with them. It lies with us it's for not realizing what we signed up for. This is what you get. Exactly. Tinderbox, HBO's ruthless pursuit of new frontiers. The great James Andrew Miller. Go buy the book right now. It's fantastic. Jim, can't thank you enough. We'll talk again soon. And yeah, thank you so much. Cody, I learned something new about you. You're a big Oz guy. I love it. <laughs> when you guys were talking about Oz, that's my childhood right there. I learned about life at about 13 years old at 1 a.m. in the morning when I'm supposed to be asleep, putting Oz on. And my and I, man, there's just these eyes had not seen things. <laughs> a lot of male nudity, a lot of sodomy, a lot of prison rape. They did not expect Edie Falco pre Carmelo <laughs> Soprano. I mean, sleeping with guards, as I mentioned, Rita Moreno. Oz, if you haven't seen it, go check out Oz. It's an all-time classic. Thank you once again to all of you for your support of Cinephile. I can't tell you how much it means to me. 200 episodes. Let's hope we get to 200 more. Next week here on Cinephile, we'll talk about House of Gucci, Power of the Dog from Jane Campion on Netflix. And until then, I'll see you at the movies. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.